Let's go to the Lord together. Oh God, we come to you in full acknowledgement of our insufficiency and our weakness. We come to you, God, in full acknowledgement that, Lord, we cannot fix us. We cannot fix our lives. We cannot fix our hearts. We need you. We need you. We need the righteousness of Christ credited to us. We need the glory of God shown to us. We need the kindness of God to be known by us. We need our dead hearts awakened, our blind eyes opened, our deaf ears awakened. We need you, O God. And every single one of us, even those of us who know you, Lord, we we need you in unique ways. And Father, we find such comfort in knowing that you, being a God of sovereign goodness and sovereign wisdom, knows what each one of us needs as we need it. And that, Lord, with your gospel and with your spirit, you will meet us there and care for us and minister to us and love us. I pray, Lord, that today you would use the sermon that way. You would speak through me what you have for me to say that I would remember what you would have for me to remember forget what you would have for me to forget say what I haven't even thought of yet prophetically by your word and by your spirit I pray God for the hearts of men and women and children all over the house this morning that God they would be softened by your spirit and receive the word of God and that it would not return void in them help us now to see clearly what you have for us in Christ Jesus' name we pray amen you may be seated All of us are born as Pharisees. Recently, former President George W. Bush made a statement at the memorial for the slain Dallas officers that I thought was profound. President Bush said that we too often we judge other groups by their worst example while we judge ourselves by our best intentions. And I think that that's profound because I think that the sentiment of that speaks to that tiny little legalist that lives inside of every single one of us. It speaks to that tiny little Pharisee that's always popping up in our hearts to tell us how okay we are and how wrong everybody else is. See, the truth is, is that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We tend to to see everybody else's sin in an exaggerated form and we tend to exacerbate our view of their sin so that it's as big as possible while at the very same time we tend to minimize the wickedness of our own hearts. With everybody else we tend to believe that they're going to get what's coming to them and for us we tend to believe that we're just going to, it's all just going to work out okay. Because we are born with the heart of a Pharisee. We are born with the mentality of a legalist. John MacArthur says of the Pharisees, he says that there has never been a group of men more committed to a religiously rigorous moral standard, and yet there has never been a group of men farther from the heart of God. So this morning as we open up our text, I ask us bluntly, are we Pharisees? Are we Pharisees? 
or at a minimum, where in our lives do we see pharisaical characteristics bubbling up in us that we might put those things to death, that we might find room for Christian repentance to turn from those and begin to pursue Christ in greater honesty. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. This week is one of those weeks where, first of all, I'm excited to be back in the pulpit because I did not preach last week. I know that it was in enable hands, but I'm always anxious to get back. But we have the conviction of expository preaching here, which means we preach through books of the Bible. And the reason that we do that is so that we can't dodge stuff, so that we can't dodge tough passages, so that we also, so that we don't say the same things every single week. It kind of makes us talk about new things because every passage is new. But if I'm honest with you, if I was not committed to expository preaching, this would be a passage I would skip over. Probably very few of you have ever heard this passage preached, and the reason is, is this just a difficult passage to preach? So I covet your prayers and stand with me as we read God's inerrant word together. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 38 and read through verse 45. God's word says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, your Bible may say the queen of Sheba, or the queen of Africa, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. May God bless the preaching and the reading of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to Matthew chapter 12, we can see that Matthew laid out his book very purposefully. He spent most of Matthew chapter 11 kind of building up in our minds the character of Christ. That we might understand who Christ is. That we might realize kind of what, what Christ's mission is about and what the spirit of Christ and how all of that flows together. And when we get into Matthew chapter 12, what we see Jesus begin to do is Jesus begins to do a contrast. Having just revealed to us and built up in our minds the character of Christ, he now takes the character of Christ and the character of the Pharisees and he lays them beside one another. And so throughout chapter 12, what we see is, is we see Jesus revealing to us the differences between Jesus and the Pharisees. So we have the Pharisees who are seen as the religious elite of the day. They were seen as the picture of godliness of their day. And instead, now we see God showing us Christ through Matthew that we might see that the picture of religion as defined by the Pharisees is a false one, an ineffective one. A dishonoring one to the glory of God. And instead that we might see a true, pure, and undefiled religion in Christ Jesus. 
I think he does this for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, primarily, as Aaron really spoke to last week, is so that you might lay your life beside these two examples that are given and see whose fruit is most resembled in your life. So that you might see whether or not you have good fruit in your life that resembles the character of Christ, or you have bad fruit in your life that resembles the character of the Pharisees. That if your life is in fact defined by bad fruit, then you need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ that the character of Christ might be revealed in you. I think the second reason that he does that is for the Christian. For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might take our lives and we might lay them beside Christ, lay them beside the, er- the, the Pharisees, and be able to see the areas of our lives that are incongruent with Christ and that are more like the Pharisees. That we can see those areas for us and where greater discipleship is needed and greater sanctification is needed and where we can still model Christian repentance and align our lives in greater congruence with Christ. Christ Jesus. Now, behind the scenes in chapter 12, we know that tension is bubbling, right? In verse, I believe it's in, is it in verse 14 of chapter 12 that it tells us, yeah, verse 14 of chapter 12 says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him, that the tensions between the Pharisees and Christ Jesus are bubbling at an all-time high, and we're beginning to reach critical mass. That there's an explosion coming. That they are intending to find some way to pin him against the wall. That they can ultimately destroy him. Hopefully even kill him. And so on this occasion they they send to him what appears to be a special committee. He had scribes, many of whom most likely were Pharisees, who were the the leaders, the the experts in the law. And then you had the Pharisees, again, the the religious reformers of the day, the religious leaders of the day. And they send to him kind of a, a joint committee to come to Christ and to ask him for a request. They come to, G- to Jesus, in fact, like many people I know come to Jesus, as though he is a, a genie in a bottle that they can rub on him and tell him what they wish for. They come to Jesus in a way that is with false humility and false respect. And I say that because what do they say? They come in to him and they say, teacher, we wish that you would show us a sign. We wish for a sign. They come to him, in other words, in a way that appears to be respectful. To call Jesus teacher is the right way to address him in this day. Teacher was the term that was given to someone that had uh, recognized authority to be a spiritual leader, recognized authority to be a spiritual teacher. It was the word that was given to rabbis of the day, but we know that it was a sarcastic acknowledgement. We know that it was a, a false respect because of the request that they make. They come to Jesus and they request, they say, can we, we wish for a sign. Now why is that disrespectful to Jesus? Why is that, should that be seen as a flagrant rejection of the Christ? Think of all that they've witnessed. Think of all that they have seen, that that Matthew has been purposeful in letting us know that the Pharisees witnessed these great signs, these great miraculous events of Christ. In Matthew 9 it tells us that they witnessed a paralyzed man get up and walk with his sins forgiven. It tells us that they watched as Jesus healed the man, healed a man with a withered hand. He healed two blind men. A mute man was now speaking. They were there when Jesus cast the demon out of a demon-oppressed man who could neither speak nor see. And yet he left both speaking and seeing. 
And they attributed that work of Christ to the demonic powers of Satan himself, saying, surely this must be by the power of Beelzebul. Oh, they had seen it. They had seen the work of Christ firsthand. They had seen the power of Christ firsthand. They had been witnesses. And so they come to him and say, show us more. We need more, Jesus. You have not been clear enough for us. We are still not certain of your power. We are still not certain of your authority. And what are they saying? We reject everything else that we've seen. We reject everything else that we've witnessed. We still believe it was by demonic power. We still believe it was by deception. We still believe that all that has been done can be explained away in a way that discredits you. So what else is Jesus to do? What is Jesus to do here? If Jesus turns the moon red, they're going to explain it away as a scientific phenomenon. If Jesus tells a dead man to get up and walk, they're going to point to him and say, witchcraft worthy of capital punishment. If the skies of heaven split open and God once again says what he has already said, that this is my son in whom I am well pleased, they are going to dismiss it as though they are being deceived by what they hear. You see, they were not coming to Jesus seeking a sign that their faith may be strengthened. They were coming to Jesus seeking, a, seeking to further justify their dislike of him, their disapproval of him. They aren't coming so that they might find a reason for obedience. They are coming so they might continue justifying their disobedience. You know, I find that too often modern sign seekers come to God with the same spirit as the Pharisees. That too often we go to God and we say, God, this is going to be on my terms. This is not going to be on your terms. That you are going to reveal yourself to me this way and this way and this way. And if you reveal yourself to me the way that I want you to reveal yourself to me, then maybe we'll begin to talk about obedience a little bit. That in fact, though God uses signs throughout the New Testament. In fact, God used signs in the Old Testament to verify prophets. I believe that the majority of the time that we come to God requesting a sign, it is typically indicative of a hardened, resistant heart to the will of God. We say, God, if you would show me a sign, I would go on mission. God, if you would show me a sign, I would surrender to the ministry. God, if, if you would show me a sign... I would give generously to the needy person that I know has a need. If you would show me a sign, I would share the gospel with my coworker. And what's the problem with all of those questions? What's the problem with all of, all of those requests of God? First, it's saying, God, you're going to do this my way. I'm not going to do it your way. But second of all, God has already instructed us to do all of those things. God has already told us explicitly in his word that we are to do those things. And so when we go to God for that sign, are we going so that our faith might be strengthened? Or are we going expecting not to see the sign that we might be able to justify our unfaithfulness and justify our disobedience? See, I think very often when we go to God asking for a sign, we are going to God hoping more than anything that we can get out of the thing that we really don't want to do. We're hoping that we can go to God and not see the sign so that then we can get out of the, the self-denying ways of following after Christ. 
so that we can avoid the hardships that come with faithfulness. So that we can avoid, avoid the pain that often is associated with obedience. So that we can continue on with our own self-indulgence. Are you the kind of person that is always going to God asking for signs? If you are, I beckon you to question your heart. To evaluate your heart. Are you going that your faith might be strengthened? Or are you going by, that you are hoping to justify some form of disobedience and get out of walking faithfully with the Lord? Jesus responds to the Pharisees' request that day in a way that is proportional to the foolishness that they've demonstrated. Jesus responds with a, a level of severity that is equal to the level of, of wickedness in the request of the Pharisees. In fact, he, he says something to them in verse 40 that must have taken them back. It must have put them back on their heels. He says, for, I'm sorry, in verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, the words that Jesus is speaking there are not random words that Jesus has chosen. Those are words that are common in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. Even more particularly in the prophets of the Old Testament. These were words that the prophets would often speak that God would send them to Israel and they would preach to the people of Israel that your hearts are wicked, your hearts are evil. You are an adulterous generation that has prostituted yourself out to all of the false gods of the earth. That it was often spoke to Israel whenever they would bow their hearts to false idols and bow their hearts to false gods and give themselves over to kind of the culture of the day. The prophet would go and he would say, you evil and adulterous generation. Now what's striking about the way he says this to the Pharisees? What's provocative about this? What's provocative is, is that the Pharisees are the reformers of the day. The Pharisees are the people that are holding up the law of God and saying, follow the law, we must obey the law, we must live the law, we must behave as the law mandates us behave. That they were calling people away from false gods. They were calling people away from idolatry to live according to the law strictly in adherence to exactly what the word says. In fact, they would memorize the 633 laws found in the Old Testament. And they would even build another system of laws around those laws to try to protect people from falling into sinfulness. They saw themselves as the people that were doing the work of the prophets. They saw themselves as the people who were upholding the ways of God and the law of God, calling people into obedience. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, I am not interested in a behavior that is devoted to me from a heart that is not. That you may seem to be faithful in your behavior. You may be built up high in your own mind because of your faithfulness to the law. But your heart is corrupt. The inside of your cup is filthy. And it is repulsive and detestable in the sight of God. That you are just as idolatrous. You are just as adulterous as those people who bowed their hearts to the golden calf of Baal. You can imagine how, what the kind of fury that would incite 
and the Pharisees. But if we're honest, that's the question we need to ask of our own hearts. The question that we need to ask of our own hearts is whether or not we're going through the motions behaviorally, whether or not we're, we're just kind of doing and, and the, the, the Christian thing that we think we're supposed to do because we're supposed to do it, or whether or not our hearts are genuinely devoted to the Lord. Is our church attendance because we want to grow nearer in greater intimacy with God and with God's people, or is our church attendance camouflage for our own self-centeredness? Do we, when we say that God is the most important thing in all of our lives, the most important relationship that dominates our whole life, are we saying that because that's what we're supposed to say, or are we saying that because it is the truth? Brothers and sisters, I believe that our hearts are much more adulterous than our makeup and faces portray. Let us be honest with ourselves. Let us look deeply into the mirror. That we might know whether or not we are bringing glory to God, not just through action, but through attitude. That we might bring glory to God, not through just life behavior, but heart devotion. That we not live like a Pharisee. That Jesus would not come to Iron City Baptist Church and rebuke us as being evil and adulterous in our hearts. And so Jesus... He understands that not another sign is not going to fix the issue that day. Jesus understands that there's no sign, that no miracle that he's going to perform that's going to allow the, or cause the Pharisees to immediately say, Oh, well, of course you're the Messiah. Of course you're the son of David. I will bow to you, and I will worship you, and I will follow you, and I will be your disciple. Jesus is fully aware of the group that he's talking to that day. And so Jesus does not perform a miracle that day. Instead, Jesus points forward to a greater sign. Jesus points forward to the ultimate sign. Jesus points forward ultimately to the resurrection, the day in which he will be verified as the son of God. The day in which he will be held up as the son of David. The day in which he will defeat the grave, rise as the victor, showing the Pharisees to be the fools that they are. He uses, he calls it something strange here. He calls it the sign of Jonah. don't know if you've ever really thought about the resurrection as being the sign of Jonah. But if you'll think back to the story of Jonah, it's one of the ones that's most familiar to us. God comes to this prophet named Jonah, and Jonah is not a man that impresses us very much. Jonah is a man that God tells, go and preach to the wicked Gentile city of Nineveh. Tell them that my judgment is coming against them, that perhaps they will repent. And what does Jonah do? Famously, he goes to Tarshish, right? He goes the other way and he gets on the boat and the sea begins to rock and, and Jonah's just chilling. They wake him up and he says, well, you're going to have to throw me overboard because I'm the reason for all of this. I'm in disobedience to the Lord and I know it. They take Jonah and they throw in the waters calm. And it seems certain that if you're reading the story, that Jonah has found his end, and it is in fact the end that he deserves. He is going to die in the belly of a great fish. But the Bible tells us that he is in the belly of that fish for three days. And while he's in the belly of the fish, as you can imagine, Jonah does some soul searching. Like, if I'm in the belly of a fish, I'm questioning my life decisions. You know what I'm saying? 
And so Jonah, questioning his life decisions in the midst of the, in the belly of the fish, comes to a place of repentance, and the fish expels Jonah onto the bank. He goes to Nineveh, preaches a short sermon, says, you must repent or the condemnation of the Lord is coming, and all of Nineveh repents. And Jesus says, I am the greater Jonah. That Jonah was delivered from a virtual death out of the belly of the fish to save the wicked city of Nineveh. And I will be delivered from a true and literal death out of the belly of the earth to save and deliver the wicked people of the world. Of all generations. That just as Jonah was expelled out, verifying him as the prophet of God, I will rise up a victor over the grave, proven as the son and savior of God. That I am the greater Jonah that is here. And Jonah preached as a, as a half-committed prophet, and I preach with all of the authority of heaven. And though I preach with all of the authority of heaven, you still reject me. You see, the same thing that the faith hinges on today is the same thing that it hinged on 2,000 years ago with the Pharisees. The resurrection. The victory over the grave. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Friend that is here. And you, you don't really know what to make of Christ. You've rejected Christ over and over. Maybe not in lip service. Maybe not in behavior. But in your heart. In your mind. With your will. You have purposely rejected Christ Jesus himself. I ask you the question. What else does he have to do? What else does he have to do? To prove to you that he is the Christ. He lived a perfect life. Perfectly in sync with all of the Old Testament prophets. He died a death exactly as he said he would die willfully in your place. But more than all of that. He was raised from the dead in a way that was perfectly synchronized with hundreds of years of prophecy. In the face of great opposition that did not want to see him do it. What else does he have to do to prove to you that he is the verified, bona fide, solidified son of God, worthy of your devotion, worthy of your worship, worthy of your allegiance, worthy of your life? What else does Christ have to do? Perhaps you perceive that that is the case. Perhaps you have perceived for some time, perhaps... You, or you are even in the church today because you perceive that Christ Jesus is the one worthy of your allegiance, even though you have never truly given him your allegiance. And I think the warning that Jesus gives us in verses 41 and 42 is particularly pertinent. It's, it's particularly applicable to all of us that might find ourselves in that position Today, Because he takes those verses and he really drives home a point that he taught us way back in chapter 11. Do you remember what Jesus says in chapter 11? He goes in verses 20 through 24 is really what I have in mind there. And Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
that Jesus is driving home for us a point he has already made clearly. That the measure of your judgment experienced in the condemnation of your rejection of him will be totally in proportion to how clearly God has been revealed to you. How clearly Christ Jesus has been revealed to you. Do you see the picture? Do you see the contrast between Nineveh and the Pharisees? Jonah, a half-committed prophet, had to be swallowed by a fish just to go, who really, we find out at the end of Jonah, didn't want Ninevites to repent to begin with, goes to them, preaches what couldn't have been a super convictional sermon, a short sermon, and immediately they all repent. Their hearts break. They tear, they cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And yet the Pharisees, had the very Son of God speaking with the authority of heaven, performing the miracles and signs in their midst, and yet they rejected him time and time and time again. And he is saying that on the judgment day, Nineveh will be there to accuse you and to show you what fools you are, the wicked Gentile city that I sent a half-committed prophet, repented and turned to me, and yet you hardened and resisted in your hearts day after day after day, and your judgment will be far greater. He uses the Queen of Sheba, who we meet in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. She is a pagan Gentile woman queen who gets on a camel and rides 1,200 miles to go to hear the wisdom of Solomon about the truth of God and the wisdom of God because she had perceived that there was greater power and greater glory in that than anything that she had ever bowed down to before. And he says, you, you who believe you are the religious elite, She will be there on your judgment day. You have hardened your heart. God, you did not have to go looking for him. He pursued you. He sought out you. He lived among you. He revealed himself to you. And you rejected him over and over and over. And the queen of Sheba will denounce you at the judgment. The picture is how easily the pagans repented. And how steadfastly the Pharisees rejected him. See, all of this boils down to a very simple question. Do you trust in Christ or not? Do you trust in Christ or not? Is he worthy of your devotion or not? Is he worthy of your life or not? Will you bow down to him or not? Because brothers and sisters, who in the history of the world has heard the gospel more times and more clearly and more pervasively than the American South? Could it be that brothers and sisters raised up from Islamic from Islamic families and brothers and sisters raised up from Hindu families and brothers and sisters raised up from Buddhist families are there on the judgment day to point down to you and say, you rejected Christ day in and day out, steadfast in your rejection, and I am here to show you what a fool you are because of the glories of God that I now know. People being saved all around you. God, Jesus, transforming through the Spirit lives right in front of you. The gospel being preached to you week in and week out. And over and over and over you harden your heart and resist the Lord. Do you trust Christ or not? Will you give him your life or not? 
Jesus ends our passage this morning by telling a strange parable. It's a parable in which the main character, and when you read a parable, you always want to identify the main character. It's a parable in which the main character is, in fact, a demonic spirit. And it says that this demonic spirit, for whatever reason, leaves his host, and he goes out seeking that which a demon can never find, rest. So he goes out into the desolate places. Demons need no water. Demons need no food. Perhaps thinking that the quiet and the alone will be good for him. And yet he goes there and he thinks, you know, I think I'll return back. And so he goes back to his, to his host person, his host man. And when he gets there, he finds what seems to be a strange sight to the demon. He gets there and it appears that this man's house, which is representing his heart, representing his soul, has been swept, put into order, is clean, yet vacant. And so the demon, like a prodigal who goes to his parents' empty, empty lake house, brings in all of his rowdy friends, and they live it up in the midst of this man and fully inhabit him, overcoming him, totally flipping the house upside down to where the Bible says he is in a state much worse than he began. Here's the picture. The picture is a man who by his own will, by his own resolve, by his own commitment, has decided to, to live a better life. Has decided to live a, a life that is less wicked. And so he has identified for whatever reason some level of evil, some level of sin in his life. And he has sought to overcome that sin, to get rid, to, to empty himself of that sin. I think implied in here is that it is based on some type of religious experience. I don't know exactly what that is. Perhaps it's he, had, he was a Pharisee and he was called out in it. Perhaps he heard the judgment of the Pharisees and sought to reform. Perhaps he was, heard the preaching of John the Baptist and had even been baptized by John the Baptist. Or maybe he just lived in perpetual guilt over his sin and wanted to get away from it. But for whatever reason, the man rids himself of this wicked spirit, this wicked sin in his life. And for a little while, it's okay. For a season, everything seems better. For a week, maybe, or a month, maybe, or a year, maybe. We don't really know how long, but for a, for a short period, for a window, the man seems better. The house appears to be in order. But then like metastasized cancer that comes and spreads throughout the body, the demon returns and so inhabits him with seven of his friends that the man is utterly hopeless and thrown into a frenzy of sinfulness that he will never again be able to overcome. The picture here is of the frailty of self-reform. John MacArthur says that, that self-cleansing is never permanent and that's the picture here a man that tries to fix himself a man that tries to to do better work harder clean up a little bit and yet what he finds is is that that only works for a short window because he is just masking the symptoms and his heart is still sick you see behavioral change apart from gospel repentance is nothing more than the emptying of a house awaiting the return of the demon. 
For us to stand before a holy God hiding behind our own good behavior is akin to us hiding beneath a school desk from a nuclear bomb. You can mask it for a little while. You can make yourself feel secure for a little while, but eventually you will be found out. Eventually you will revert back, and some of you know that so, so, so well. See, the question here that's being presented by this parable is not, have you emptied yourself of sin alone? It's not asking you how empty and how void of sin are you. The question it's asking is, how full of God are you? How full of God are you? That it is not enough for a man to empty himself of sin. He must, in its place, fill himself with God. That if there is nothing but emptiness and void in you, you will return back to the bottle. You will return back to the drug. You will return back to the materialism. You will return back to the wickedness. If there is a void in you, no matter how many times you try to cast the sin out of you, it will always turn back. But if you fill yourself with God, if you fill yourself with God, transformation happens. It's the difference between behavioral modification and heart transformation. See, I know that many of you grew up and are used to and accustomed to hearing preaching that focuses on what you do and how you should behave and the places that you should go and not go and the things you should do and not do and the things you should think and not think. But I'm not so concerned with that as I am whether or not you know God. Do you know God? Not know of God. Not have professed faith in God. Do you know God? Do you spend all of your time thinking about your behavior? Or do you spend all of your time thinking of the glory and supremacy of God? What fills your mind? Could it be that we live in a state of perpetual guilt because we focus all of our thoughts and all of our intentions on our own misbehavior rather than focusing all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our thoughts on the glory and supremacy of God himself? The answer to the Christian life, the remedy of the Christian life is not to be empty of sin and void of sin. It is to be full of God. Think through your life. What do you think about? Do you ever find yourself just getting lost just thinking of the glory of God? Do you ever find yourself getting lost in wonder, considering and contemplating the love of God for you? Do you ever get lost in awe and in wonder, realizing that God is everywhere and you see him all over the place as you drive down the road, as you go to the woods, as you live in your house, as you're with your family? Are you awestruck by the glory of God? Or is it more you every day, second by second, beating yourself up, thinking of all the problems, thinking of all your problems, thinking of all your screw-ups, thinking of all your blow-ups? Brothers and sisters, you know that I believe that a Christian must be sorrowful over his sin. You know that I believe that a a Christian must feel the weight of his sin and live in a spirit of repentance. But repentance is not merely stopping. Repentance is changing directions. It's not merely being sorrowful over your sin. It's at the same time being awestruck by the glory of God and pursuing the glory of God and filling yourself with the glory of God. 
I think the Christian's job every single day is to get as full of God as they can possibly get and then live the day. Get as full of God as they can possibly get and then live the day. And what you will find is that through that, your behavior will change, your heart will change, your mind will change, your desires will change, your appetites will change. Fill yourself up on the word of God. Fill yourself up praying and talking with God. Fill yourself up and training yourself as you make your commute to work to look around and see God everywhere. Fill yourself up on God day after day after day. And day after day after day, you will watch as your life unfolds in a transformed, more sanctified state. This morning, as Jessica was singing, desert song and talks about us being a co-heir with Christ. I just thought, you know, that would be a good starting place for us. Have you ever just stopped to think? If, 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 you're not used, if you're not accustomed to filling yourself up with God, let's just start here for a second. Could we, church? Let's just start there. You, Romans 5 says, was an enemy of God. You were an enemy of God. An enemy. God was against you. You were against God. And now, you are a co-heir with Christ Jesus. That is, that in the kingdom of God, at the table of God, you sit in son status. You sit in daughter status. You are his child, brother. It is not based on your behavior. It is not based on your good works. It is not based on your good names. It is the work of Jesus Christ who has secured you forever at his table with him in fellowship and glory and joy to know the supremacy of God and the kindness of God and the grace of God and the manifold mercies of God forever. Should we not be full of God like that? You want to know how to prepare your heart for heaven? That's how. That's how. Because every moment of every day, you will wake up in awe and wonder, being filled with the glory of God and the splendor of God and the supremacy of God. And every day you will say, hallelujah, praise God that I am here with him forever. You will want nothing else. You will feel no more guilt. There will be no more transformation to be had. That is what will transform you. So brothers and sisters, this morning, I beckon us to look to the greater Jonah. To look to the wiser Solomon. To look to the resurrected Christ and to be filled with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Forgive us for how often we consider only our misbehavior. How we see, seek to change ourselves by self-reform and willpower. Lord, instead, God, let us not in, only empty ourselves of sin and put to death what is earthly in us. Oh, but God, let us put on your glory. Let us put on your righteousness. Let us be filled with you. God, would you move in our hearts? Would you reveal areas in which we are incongruent with the life of Christ? Would you change us more into your image? Let us live lives 
that are defined by the victory of Christ's resurrection. Transformed into his image because we are so full of him, him and his spirit. We ask these things now in Christ. Amen.